This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Eric Schnitzer to the program. How are you doing, Eric? Uh, Very well, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing well. Since 1997, Eric Schnitzer has been a park ranger historian at Saratoga National Historical Park, the national park that commemorates the battles around Saratoga, New York, considered to be the turning point in the American Revolution. How and why did you get that job? Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, I I was between my junior and senior year of college at uh, State University New York at Albany, and I got a phone call from a friend of mine who worked here at the park at the time, uh, Jamie Perillo, and he told me that there was a seasonal position opened uh, so that uh, if I applied for it, I could work at the battlefield for the the summer season, you know, for a few months in summer. Mm -hmm. And because it was between uh, uh, semesters, I thought, well, I should apply. So I did. And uh, funny enough, I didn't get the job originally. Somebody else did. But they quit after two weeks. And uh, then I was called and offered the job. And so I was a seasonal park ranger uh, at the battlefield for three years. And then in 2002, I, um, there, was, there was an opportunity for a permanent position uh, that I, I applied for that, and uh, thankfully I, I got it. <laughs> now, I, I don't want to be embarrassing to you about this, but I've heard you speak, and you're a very engaging speaker, and I've seen some things online that indicate that the, the people that come to visit the battlefield really enjoy uh, talking with you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind, very generous. Uh, and I love talking to them, in all honesty. Um, it's it's really a great job in, in the National Park Service to have a position where, um, you know, it, it's more than just a job for me. It's, it's a, an avocation as well. So I love the subject matter to research it and write it. And I love to present it. I love to talk about it, either formally, uh, such as a seminar, or informally, uh, person to person. I'll I'll speak with people who come to the battlefield on a regular basis, asking questions about the battles of Saratoga, you know, gen, gen, you know general questions, mm-hmm. or more in-depth questions. Uh, a, a lot of them pertain to their ancestry, for example. You know, I had an ancestor who served in the battles of Saratoga, they'll say. What can you tell me about him? Mm-hmm. So, if I have a moment, I can look it up, but I, and I love to. I, I love all kinds of engagements with visitors or with crowds of people about this subject, and uh, I, I'm uh, honored that people would uh, think so well of me in, in uh, speaking with me about it. I, I, I really appreciate that. Eric Schnitzer uh, spoke, and I heard him speak, at this year's Mohawk Valley American Revolution Conference sponsored by the Fort Plain Museum, and he spoke about uh, some aspects of, I, I gather, the gathers your your life's work, if you will, your your life study uh, of the organization, the personnel, the culture of the British, American, and German armed forces in the conflict. And at the recent uh, conference, you focused on the German soldiers who were involved in the northern campaign of 1777 on the British side. And I, and I gather that, that you're of, of German origin yourself? I am, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, my, um, actually, the Germans, uh, both sides of my family have German heritage. My mother's uh, German ancestry came to America, to New York State, in the 1850s. My father's side of the family uh, is actually from Germany, and they came over in the year 1958. So I'm first-generation American, actually. Hmm. 
Now, uh, we when we hear about the uh, German soldiers who uh, fought with the uh, British in the American Revolution, we usually say that they are Hessians. But I gathered from your talk that that is and is not true. Exactly right. Yeah. So um, during the entirety of the Revolutionary War, if we take all eight years, uh, the British government is going to uh, um, have agreements with six different German nation states. Of course, as as you know well, uh, Germany was not one single country in uh, the, uh, the 18th century. It was only unified later in the 19th century. And so you have um, these independent and quasi-independent German nation states throughout what we now know as Germany and a bit beyond, frankly. Um, and each one of these different German nation states had uh, uh, leadership, you know, a, a prince or a duke or a, a Landgraf, and they each had their own armies. And sometimes these were armies for hire. And so the British government hired six different German nation state armies or, or portions thereof, uh, you know, technically. Mm-hmm. And um, of the six that they hired, two of them were what we call Hessian states. Hessen Castle, Hessen Hanau. And so if you're from Hessen Castle or Hessen Hanau, you are a Hessian. Mm-hmm. Just like if you're from the United States of America, you are an American. Um, so you have these four other German nation states, such as Waldeck und Pyrmont, Braunschweig, uh, Lüneburg, uh, Anhalt Zerbst, uh, Anspach und Bayreuth. Uh, these German nation states were not Hessian states. So they weren't Hessians. However, the interesting thing is that Americans today and in the 18th century refer to all of those Germans that came over with the British as Hessians, whether they were properly Hessians or not. Uh, Usually Americans did not differentiate, Uh, and typically we don't today. Okay, but and did the Hessians, well, I gather there was a certain amount of friction among the ethnic groups or the different uh, maybe it's not ethnic groups but the different groups like the hessians and the uh, the others that you mentioned uh, uh, was that so uh, there was some. They were very, very keen to make sure that they had parity between the two, the, the, the various states that served in uh, the same army. So, for example, in General Burgoyne's army in 1777, you had two uh, types of German nation state soldiers with it. You had soldiers from uh, Braunschweig. They're Brunswickers uh, in, in the English. Uh, they're not Hessians. But then there were Hessians. They came from Hessen-Hanau. And so the Brunswickers far outnumbered the Hessians in General Burgoyne's army. But you do have some friction, indeed, like you said. So uh, there was an instance, for example, where you had two uh, brigadiers, you know, the lowest ranking general officer rank. One was a Brunswicker. One was a Hessian in Burgoyne's army. The Hessians... Uh, uh, he had the Hessian commander there. He had two regiments under his command. One of them was taken away. And so the British government said to General Burgoyne, well, you know, General Burgoyne, you now have a Hessian general with one regiment under his command, his own regiment. He can't be a general. You've got to bump him down to the rank of colonel. And Burgoyne's response was, I, I can't do that because it gives uh, umbrage to the Hessian contingent of the army. If I was to bump the guy down to a colonel, mm. they'll take offense at that because the Brunswickers still have a general, you know, uh, or two, in fact. 
So, uh, you know, the, uh, the British had to be very, very careful about how they treated um, uh, you know, each other, uh, you know, the, the Germans. There's also another thing, and I, I don't think I mentioned this one in the seminar. There's so many things to mention. But uh, one of the Hessian officers was captured in the Battle of Bennington. In fact, he was the only Hessian officer captured at Bennington. His name was Johann Bach, of all things. <laughs> and <laughs> he writes to his um, his, his count, the, the Count of Hessen-Hanau, and he talks about how he was uh, completely plundered of all of his personal possessions in the Battle of Bennington by the rebels. And then he talks about how he had to um, borrow uh, money and, and, and clothing and etc. from the Brunswick officers who were likewise captured in the Battle of Bennington. And then he says, and this is, this is the, the key point of, of the, the, the letter, he says, um, because I'm the only Hessian officer in captivity, I have to seek relief and help from strangers. And I'm fascinated by this because he refers to these other German officers, these Brunswick officers, as strangers. strangers. <laughs> we wouldn't think they would be. You'd think they're all Germans, you know, and they are Germans. And, and uh, But he calls them strangers. I, I'm fascinated by that. And you made another point that I never really thought of. I guess I knew something about it, but, oh, yeah, you know, as to why... German troops would be fighting with the British. I mean, we're used to hearing about Britain and Germany fighting. I mean, the the two nations in the 20th century. But the the point that you mentioned was that King George was German. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Uh, George III, who is the king of Great Britain, which, of course, is England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, he's also the king of Ireland. Uh, I have to point out uh, that Ireland at the time is a, an island of occupation. Mm -hmm. A huge portion of the British army is actually stationed in Ireland to make sure that the Irish population accepts, you know, quote-unquote, uh, the king of Ireland, George III. Uh, he also claims to be, of all things, uh, the king of... Uh, uh, France, because uh, his, uh, you know, you know, uh, one of one of the ancestors, uh, uh, indirect ancestors, uh, Edward III, I believe, uh, was at one point king of, of France, and so the the monarchs of Great Britain and Ireland continue to be kings of France up until George IV. Uh, but anyway, indeed, he, George III, was also the Elector of Hanover. Uh, which was a large German nation state and one of the six, uh, or I'm sorry, one of the six or seven uh, electoral states that uh, actually uh, elected the uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire or empress, depending on who they're selecting. Uh, but yes, indeed. So he was the elector of Hanover. He's the head of Hanover. He never had been to Hanover in his lifetime. He never visited Hanover, so he'd never set foot in it. But he's still, it's executive leader. And because of that connection, because of his German heritage, uh, his uh, uh, great-grandfather had been George I and uh, had come from Hanover originally. Uh, he had a lot of family ties with a lot of these German nation state leaders. And so because of that, when the Revolutionary War began, 
he, George III, knows exactly who to go to because of the family ties. Mm. You know, his sister, for example, is married to one of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the Duke of Brunswick's son, uh, for example. So uh, they go to Brunswick, the British do. They go to Brunswick because of that family connection. And of course, the Duke of Brunswick is not going to say no to George III uh, when he's looking to hire out troops uh, for this rebellion in America. And in every case, in every one of the six different German nation states, in every case, the British monarchy had either a direct or an indirect relationship uh, with with the, the state leaders. Eric Schnitzer is with us, a park ranger historian at the Saratoga National Historical Park in upstate New York. We're talking with him about uh, German soldiers who uh, fought with the British in the Northern Campaign, as it was called, I believe, in uh, 1777. Uh, more with Eric in uh, just a moment. This is Bob Cudmore. Just want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign. Our GoFundMe campaign financially supports the Historian's Podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can go to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018, and they'll walk you through it, and you'll be able to donate using your credit card online. If you'd rather donate by check, you can make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. We're talking with Eric Schnitzer, park ranger historian at the Saratoga National Historical Park, who in particular has uh, researched the uh, German uh, soldiers, both Hessians or Brunswickers and and others who uh, fought with the uh, British in the uh, campaign of uh, 1777. What was in it for the the German nation states, and what was in it for the German soldiers who who came to America to fight, and in some cases die? Yeah, right. Great question. Well, uh, for the German nation state leaders, uh, who are of course heads of their respective governments, um, they. Uh, create with the British uh, during the period of, of negotiations, they create treaties. These treaties are, I think, very beneficial to the German nation states because what happens is that, of course, the, govern- the German governments are receiving lots of money from the British for the hiring of these German troops, lots of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and further, uh, because you might think, well, if they're sending out all of these German troops from these little tiny German you know, uh, states, what if they get attacked by France or some, you know, some nation like that looking to take an advantage of their weakened state? Well, the treaty included language which stated that if, let's just say, the, the Duchy of Brunswick was attacked by a foreign power, the British would have to come to their defense. So the German states were sapping their military forces, but they would have this this uh, this agreement with Great Britain that if they came to be attacked, that they would be defended by the British, which is a kind of a win-win situation. So the German uh, governments, they're receiving lots of money and they're receiving um, uh, promises of protection via the treaties uh, that they create with the British. As for the German soldiers themselves, you know, of course, there's always the the double-edged sword of uh, being a soldier insofar as 
you can be in the military and receive pay and clothing and food and medical attention, all bo- uh, benefits that most people in the 18th century had to work mm-hmm. hard for. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a common laborer or a farmer, which most people were in the 18th century, most people were laborers or farmers. Uh, sure, you can get fed if you're, you know, uh, getting, you know, your, your, your pays via your work and you can buy food or, of course, you grow food as the case may be. Uh, but you're not going to be getting any medical attention for free. The military offers that. You're not going to be getting free clothing. The military offers that. Uh, in some s- states, I don't know if they all provided it. I rather doubt it. I know Britain did, though. Uh, you could get a pension, mm-hmm. which is absolutely something that no commoner is getting in the 18th mm-hmm. century. No pensions exist. But for soldiers, they do. And I know at least one of the German nation states had a pension system as well. So anyway, if you are in any of these German military forces, you have great benefits that most commoners don't have. The other side of the the double-edged sword, of course, is that you could be deployed to combat. And I would imagine that most soldiers would have preferred not to have to put their lives out on the line, um, fighting for a cause that you have to wonder how much they believed in it or not. I do find that most Germans who left us records of their service in America, and there's actually a substantial number of them, they loved to write about the Revolutionary War and their service in it, either in Burgoyne's army or in any of the other armies that uh, they served in. Um, They do generally talk about how... You know, the Americans, rebels, we got to put down the rebels. And, and they do have this kind of understanding of, of the, I'll you know, say, the, 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 the right of the, the British government and its overlordship over its 13 colonies. So they seem to be in tune with that mindset, as you would imagine. And they don't like the idea of rebellion and rebels going against, you know, quote, legitimate government. So mm-hmm. they're happy to be part of that system that's trying to put down the rebellion. Uh, but, you know, of course, it's not their king. You know, George III, although they do have to swear allegiance to him uh, before being deployed to America, he's still not their king. Mm-hmm. So they don't, you know, in, in writing home, they're not writing to anybody in Britain or to the king of England. They're writing home to their friends, their family, and in often cases, their princes, uh, reporting to their princes about what's going on in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are parroting the concept of wanting to put down this rebellion. And they seem to be happy to be part of it. Um, But for those guys, you know, those soldiers and officers who are out on the front lines getting killed, many of them, you know, it's it's definitely um, something that I would imagine they would rather not have to be put in that position, i.e. being in a battle situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, interestingly enough, I have to say this. I've been asked this many times here at Saratoga Battlefield. The idea that the German soldiers were treated as cannon fodder, because after all, if the British want to preserve their own troops, can't they just send all of these Germans into the fray all Mm -hmm. the time on the front lines? You'd think that would make sense. Um, But we find that it wasn't done um, uh, on on any regular basis. We find that often the British were more predisposed to send their own troops into battle and have the Germans kind of come up as a reserve or something like that. And there are many good reasons for it, tactical reasons. For example, the British were far better adapted to fighting in America than the Germans were. But interestingly enough, those treaties that the British created with the German nation states, each one of them 
included a provision which stated that for every German soldier killed in combat, the British government would have to pay extra money to Mm. the German Mm. state of origin. Further, for every three German soldiers who were wounded in battle, that counted as one killed for the purpose of payment. So they were literally, the Germans were literally more expensive to field than the British soldier was. Hmm. And what about the, the language barrier? I mean, the, the British officers, could they effectively command these, the German soldiers? They, they couldn't understand each other, could they? Or? Right. No, they couldn't. No. Uh, so you have a, a, a very, very interesting conundrum here. Now, General Burgoyne himself speaks English, of course, and he speaks French fluently. The German commander with his army, General Riedesel, he speaks German, of course, and he speaks French. So these two top generals are speaking French back and forth to each other. We find that the officers on their respective staffs were also chosen for their multilingual capabilities. General Burgoyne's general staff, his aides-de-camp, they could speak English, obviously. They could speak French. One of them could also speak German. This one guy, Sir Francis Clark, he could speak all three languages, which is a real rarity in Britain. Now, for the German staff officers on the German general staff, it's interesting. Half of them were Germans who spoke German and and French. The other half were English officers, or in the one case, an Irishman, uh, an Irish officer. And they could all speak a a mixture of two of the languages. And in one case, one guy, an Irish officer who was actually serving in the Brunswick army, uh, he could speak English and French and German. So you have these two guys, one on each staff who could speak all three languages. But when it came down to it, all of the orders are going to be given from the British command to the British regiments or from the British command to the German command and then from the German command to Mm -hmm. the German regiments. So you never have, let's say, a, a British colonel who's giving orders to German soldiers. Um, Now, there is another issue that I I touched upon briefly uh, at the seminar, let's say, and I did talk about it last year in great depth. The British Army, because of the difficulty in finding recruits for its redcoat ranks, they actually hired German people from Hanover, uh, the place where where George III was the elector of. And so these German people, most of them who had had some prior military service, they were Germans spoke only German. They were just, you know, German soldiers or just fresh, uh, you know, green people, you know, green at being soldiers, uh, completely inexperienced, who were now being hired to serve as red-coated soldiers within the British ranks. So you would have an Englishman next to an Englishman next to a, a man from Scotland next mm-hmm. to an Irishman, another Irishman, and then a guy from Hanover. Ah. And you got to wonder how the heck did these people communicate? And there, frankly, is no answer to it. We just don't know. We do know that there were a lot of communication problems. One of these Germans by the name of Georg Hunterdmark, he was a German, so a German man serving as a British redcoat soldier, and he left us with a very sad deposition that he had to present at a court-martial because he was on guard duty at one point about a month before the battles of Saratoga. He was up at Fort Edward in that area, and he deserted. He was captured, brought back to camp, given a trial. And during his testimony, 
he had to tell, explain his, his story as to why he deserted. He had a translator because he couldn't speak English. And I can't explain it, but there was a Scotsman by the name of Mackenzie who translated for him. So uh, here's this Scotsman named Mackenzie translating for this German guy. Uh, But he talks about, this German man talks about the discrimination that he received as being a German man in the redcoat ranks from the officers, from the soldiers, and from the women, the the followers. Uh, He says, uh, it's very compelling, he says that the, the women in his unit had the duty of washing for the men, and they get paid for it. It's not slave work. Uh, so they get paid for this duty. And so he gave shirts for the women to wash, and they, as he says in his deposition, flung the clothing back at him, saying that they would refuse to wash for uh-huh. Germans. And so he says that while he was on guard duty, he was reflecting upon the, all of this um, – discrimination and, quote, it made me melancholy and drove me to a resolution of deserting. It's very compelling. Yeah. I tell you. Well, Eric, we're, we're rapidly running out of time. Just a couple of basic points. I mean, well, how, what percentage of Burgoyne's army was, was German? Oh, yeah. About 40 percent. About 40 percent. Between 35 and 40 percent. It was substantial. And were the so now you mentioned the two things of the there were German individual German soldiers fighting in the British ranks and then the uh, like the Hessians the Brunswickers and others had their own units the individual soldiers were they conscripted or did they enlist in some way. Uh, so in every case, they volunteered either to serve in a German nation state army prior to the Revolutionary War, and then, let's say, they do this in 1770, and now it's the year 1776, and they're being forced to come to America. It's not their choice, but they're already in, let's say, the Brunswick Army, so they have to go. In other cases, though, uh, the men who enlisted, um, they were not tr- uh, conscripted in any, in, any way, in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, those guys knew fully well that they were joining units that were being sent to America. Yeah, so, but no conscriptions. Now, and also you mentioned the one man who, uh, as a German soldier who deserted. Were there others? And did some German soldiers desert and, you know, make new lives for themselves in uh, in, in the rebel-held America? <laughs> oh, yes, indeed, Bob. Absolutely, yes. Um, the Germans were, frankly, and perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, the most apt to desert, far more apt to desert than, let's say, a British soldier or not, you know, an Irishman serving in the redcoat ranks, all of whom, by the way, were also volunteers to join the redcoat ranks. They were not uh, conscripted either. So the Germans were definitely, um, I don't want to say likely, that's an exaggeration, but they, they, they deserted in, in, ma- you know, in mass at times. There was one case here, quickly I'll say it, there was uh, a guard um, of German soldiers, and they just en masse deserted. Uh, just en masse, and they joined the American army. Not not as soldiers, of course. You can't just become enemy soldiers. But they were prisoners, but they were out of now uh, the combat zone, as safe and sound as prisoners of war. And uh, uh, many of them just deserted and melted into the countryside. They married. They got jobs. They 
were able to purchase land, which is something you can't do over in Germany. No commoner can purchase land. Uh, so there was great opportunity here in America. I literally today just met somebody who said he was a direct descendant of a Hessian soldier, a proper Hessian soldier from the battles of Saratoga. And I looked up the muster rolls and there he was. <laughs> there he was. Uh, 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 Friedrich St Stein was his name. <laughs> How about that? Eric Schnitzer is a park ranger historian at Saratoga National Historical Park. And uh, we were talking, have been talking with him about the experience of German soldiers who fought with the Burgoyne's army in the uh, battles in and around Saratoga. We never really got to the the Hessians and the Battle of uh, uh, Bennington, uh, which is another whole big important thing. And just a few uh, seconds left, uh, Eric. Uh, what can you say to get people to come visit the battlefields? Well, uh, we're a national park, which means we have, of course, national significance. We're called the turning point of the Revolutionary War because it's here at the Battles of Saratoga, after which, of course, the battles were fought, the first ever British army in world history surrendered. That surrender caused the French to recognize the United States as a real country, and they became our allies. And it's with French help that we won the Revolutionary War. We couldn't have done that without their help, and we would not have had their help without Saratoga. So this is the place upon which our victory in the Revolutionary War turned. So please come and visit us, and we'll be happy to show you where the battles were fought and, of course, where the British ended up surrendering. Eric Schnitzer, again, has been our guest, park ranger, historian at Saratoga National Historical Park. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.